Hi, my name is Peter Mialogunde and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, a weekly show that highlights interesting cybersecurity news and events and how they affect regular folks like you and me and also how they all fit into the big picture of online security in this digital age. Today on the show, there will be four main segments. The first one is um, about mobile apps, where I'll be talking about the new WhatsApp privacy policies and its effect on users worldwide, President Trump's recent ban on eight Chinese mobile apps, um, a privacy flaw found in the Telegram app, and an update on fleeceware apps. What are they and what are the risks associated with them? The second segment is going to be on data breaches, and I'll be looking into the recent T-Mobile data breach, which happens to be the fourth one in three years. The third segment is going to be on new technology, where I will be analyzing a potential groundbreaking technology for the Apple Watch. And last but not the least, there will be the final segment on recent news, where I will be doing a deep dive on the U.S. Capitol riots that happened last week and the inherent cybersecurity risks. The upcoming protest at Twitter headquarters in San Francisco also related to the U.S. Capitol riots and, of course, how Trump, President Trump, was banned from Twitter permanently. And lastly, Google's attempts at countering its employees' push for unionization. To wrap up this episode, I have a bonus segment for anyone thinking about entering the field of cybersecurity, where I would run through top 10 interview questions and answers. Thanks for joining us. Let's get to it. On Wednesday, um, January 6th, WhatsApp announced new privacy policies which would allow them to share users' data, such as phone numbers and location information, with their parent company, Facebook, and its subsidiaries. According to the new policy, users must accept the new terms in order to keep using WhatsApp, latest by February 8th. Privacy activists have encouraged users to switch to alternative um, messaging apps, such as Signal and Telegram, And as a result of this, Signal's popularity skyrocketed on Thursday, January 7th, after Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, and also um, Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, endorsed Signal. And based on these high-profile endorsements, both Signal and Telegram saw um, 2.3 million downloads within two days since that announcement was made by Facebook. So um, what does all this mean? Basically, from my own point of view, messaging apps have been used um, for a long time, as far as we can all remember, to keep in touch with family and friends. Um, WhatsApp, for example, is popular in countries like India, um, Nigeria, some other parts of Europe, for example. And even in the U.S., because I know some celebrities use WhatsApp because they want more secure um, communications. Maybe they're working on some movies or upcoming albums, and they don't want random people hacking into their regular messages, maybe some iCloud backups and stuff like that. So they go on these messaging apps because they're more secure. But then in 2014... Facebook acquired WhatsApp and initially they said this acquisition is going to be a standalone acquisition. They wouldn't share data with from WhatsApp users with their Facebook infrastructure and for a long time this this promise, they kept this promise from 2014 to about 2017 but then the the owners of WhatsApp, the the founders I forget their names now, they, they kind of left WhatsApp and it took everyone by surprise, right? So that gave us an insight into what Facebook was actually planning to use WhatsApp for. They were planning to gradually incorporate WhatsApp data into their larger Facebook infrastructure and the owners of WhatsApp, they were not going to stand for that. They were not having any of that. So they left the company and basically started their own their own messaging app, which happened to be Signal. So the founders of WhatsApp started this Signal protocol. So the Signal protocol is basically um, the, the technology behind 
the encryption that is being used by Signal, which apparently is also being used by WhatsApp. But now the, the ownership of WhatsApp has changed. So the encryption methodology is still, is still being used on the WhatsApp app itself. But now the owners of WhatsApp, which is Facebook, want to start sharing that data, phone numbers, location information, and who knows what else they plan to now share with the larger Facebook infrastructure. So as a result of this, people have started leaving WhatsApp, um, technically speaking. Um, anything short of uninstalling the app from your phone, if you decide to not just use the app, then it's still sending all your location information. If you go shopping and you have the WhatsApp app installed on your phone, then Facebook knows that you went shopping at that location on that day. So anything short of uninstalling the app, then you still, not using the app doesn't change anything. So, and on social media, people have been, I guess, boycotting WhatsApp. And in the last one week, I personally saw at least 20 of my friends, um, the notification that says, so-and-so is not using Signal, so-and-so is not using Telegram. I got at least 20 of those within the past one week, and that's just people I know. So all of this is just to show that regardless of what, how we use social media, how we use messaging apps, there, there's a bunch of things that go on in the background that we necessarily don't know about. And there's some publications online that says way before... Facebook came up with this new policy last week. They had been sharing user data with Facebook's larger infrastructure anyway. So I guess they, they decided to make it an official policy and then decide to tell people, okay, you can choose to stay or leave, but this is what we're going to be doing as from February 8th. So there is that angle as well. So anyways, regardless of which messaging um, platform you use i would recommend locking down your data as much as possible i personally i use whatsapp but then i don't use it with my official phone number if that makes sense so i have a phone number i use and then i have a whatsapp phone number so it's on my phone but then it's tied to a different phone number and of course i do not share my location with any app that doesn't require it so for example a messaging app does not need to know my location and I turned it off for every single messaging app I use, Telegram, Signal, WhatsApp. And the, I would say the only app that knows my location is Google Maps because if I need to use GPS, then I need, to, I need the app to know my location. So, so that's, that's one way to lock down your apps. Do not sh unnecessarily... I don't share my contacts. That's another thing. I don't share my contacts with the apps because there's no need to to do that at least for me because that's another way my data is potentially being shared with all these other companies so phone numbers location there's really no need for all that to to be shared with all these um, apps and yeah i think that's that's all i have on this news about whatsapp and if there's any other comment suggestion um, i'm going to drop my my email for at the end of the show to for comments and suggestions and questions so next um in this segment about mobile apps is the president trump's ban on chinese mobile apps so recently the president issued an executive order banning eight chinese apps in addition to an earlier ban on two other chinese apps which are tiktok and wechat and the, the reason for this was because it said it, it posed threats to national security, the economy, and the foreign policy of the United States. The new order will, however, not take place until February. Um, that's after the new president has been sworn in, President Joe Biden. And he will now be the one to decide how or even if this ban will be enforced. So. President Trump announced a ban on about 10 Chinese apps, but then the ban will not take effect until after the new president has been sworn in. So in addition to TikTok and WeChat, the eight 
additional apps uh, alipay cam scanner qq wallet share it tencent qq vmate wechat pay and wps office so what this means is i mean of course we all know there are chinese americans living in the us there are americans who have businesses in china there are companies that do business in both the united states and china there are schools um, universities colleges high schools that have partnerships with universities colleges and high schools in china and vice versa there are churches that go on mission trips in the in the eastern asian area including china of course and there's just so many you know schools institutions companies even families there are families who have chinese relatives um and so on and so forth so all of this is going to definitely affect communications between all these institutions individuals people churches and so on and so forth so banning these apps means they won't be able to they won't be usable from an american mobile phone so if if your phone says if your phone says you're in the US then you won't be able to use and I'm guessing install these chinese apps so of course on the US side the, the argument is okay china is using this app to spy on american citizens but then there's this other angle as well okay there are americans with chinese relatives there are american schools that have business agreements with chinese schools and just the list goes on and on so it's it's more of the the risk versus the reward the cost benefit analysis who is this ban going to affect was this ban really considered um comprehensively what what, what was the rationale like the comprehensive list of okay do we just ban some of these apps okay for example if you are within let's say 100 feet of a military base in the US then you cannot use this app because from from being um from having two apps I used to have two mobile apps on the Google Play and App Store I used I developed two apps back in 2016 to 2018 so I actually know that it's possible for you to restrict usage based on a geolocation so I can say anyone living in New York City should not be able to use my app. I can actually do that from my back end. Mm-hmm. So that's something possible and we see notifications if for example you go to Walmart and then you get a notification of an an advert on your Facebook or Instagram telling you about a Walmart product. That's because the app knows that you are in a Walmart. So all of this could have been limited to okay you cannot use these apps if you are in a sensitive military zone or something of that nature but that's just that's just my own suggestion so i mean like like the news says the ban wouldn't come into effect until february so we'd see what the incoming president would do about that and next on the and, and next in this segment is telegram So a privacy flaw was developed in the Telegram app and remember when earlier we discussed how people are leaving um leaving WhatsApp to use Signal and Telegram but then um a security researcher his name is Ahmed Hassan he developed this flaw that basically leverages Telegram's people nearby feature so it's a feature on Telegram it allows you to find people near you so for example if you if you if you're new on telegram and you just want to make friends and maybe you're on campus or in your little neighborhood you you want to see okay is there anyone nearby that I can maybe start chatting with possibly make friends then hang out and stuff like that so this researcher found out that the the people nearby can actually be used to reveal a user's exact location the feature allows users of telegram to see who's around them but it has apparently been compromised by a security flaw so even if even though the setting is disabled by default so if you install te- telegram today 
that setting is disabled automatically. You have to enable it to use it. But then the people who enabled it unknowingly publish their exact location. So the, the feature doesn't say where you are. It only says people people around you, how far away they are, maybe two kilometers away, one mile away, that kind of thing. But then it is possible to spoof one location for three different points. So this is now getting into the technical details. And after you now spoof one location for three po- three different points and then combine the three distances to you, then that basically it's says where you are and this technically is known as triangulation um, airlines use it when they're flying a plane to locate exactly where the plane is at any given point in time um, police officers use it to locate a suspect um, so many different other uses so this is the flaw that the security researcher Ahmed Hassan described and Telegram has not commented on Hassan's finding at the time of recording this episode and what this means for for users regular folks like you and me is if we want to use telegram we have to be mindful of this i guess this security feature until at least they they've rectified right so if you really want to know who's around you you should be aware okay this people near me feature has this vulnerability and then you can then choose to keep using it or not. If you don't mind someone finding out your exact location, then go for it. And then last but not the least on this segment about mobile apps is I'm going to be talking about fleeceware. So fleeceware apps are basically apps that trick users into paying for eating subscription fees. And then recently, the Google Play began notifying people that this this apps are becoming a nuisance basically and then the developers target younger users so people the younger users who most likely won't pay attention to subscription details they just want to maybe play a video game or something or download some new catchy app but then some of these apps are tricking users into paying as much as 70 dollars per week for example one app one of such apps tricks users into paying $70 just to show them daily horoscopes. So today, for example, today you're going to be getting some lucky offers, that kind of thing. So up to $70 per week and multiplying that over the period of one year leads to almost $3,600 just for an app that you most likely don't even need what the app does. So one way these apps trick users into these outlandish subscriptions is not by having an opt-out option. So most normal apps will tell you, okay, you can either choose this subscription or decline. But these apps don't have a decline option. So all you see is this big OK button and there's no other close or X or anything. And then another option is having the subscription information in small, light-colored font styles. So they would claim to put the subscription information, but then you either wouldn't be able to see it or you won't be able to read it. And then you won't be able to actually see that, okay, they plan to charge you $50 to $100 per week, and then you go ahead and click OK anyway. So when you now dispute the claim, they would be like, but we told you, and you agreed to it. But then they told you in a way that you wouldn't see it. So all of this just means we, we should pay more attention to the kind of apps we install, the kind of apps our younger um, younger folks, for example, kids at home, the kind of apps they download and install. And it's, it's very easy to not pay attention. Okay, this app is basically a cartoon or some kids' video games. But then... It could have been that the child, while installing the app, agreed to this $100 charge per week, and it's going to be too late to do anything about it by the time you see the first um, debit transaction. 
So um, going further, the next segment is going to be talking about data breaches. So the, the only topic I have on that segment is regarding the T-Mobile data breach. Um, T-Mobile said it recently identified and it quickly shut down a data breach that exposed phone call related information about some accounts. That marked the fourth data breach that T-Mobile has acknowledged in the last three years. So in, in April 2020, April of last year, T-Mobile merged with Sprint, another telecommunications company. So prior to that merger, T-Mobile disclosed data breaches in August of 2018, November of 2019, and March of 2020, shortly before they merged with Sprint. And according to the to, to T-Mobile officials, this, this most recent data breach might have included phone numbers, the number of lines on an account, and then phone call related information that were collected as part of normal operations. According to the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, all those data, phone numbers, the number of lines, and then phone call related information are considered sensitive in nature. So what all of this means to regular folks like you and me is if you own a T-Mobile number, if you have a T-Mobile account, if you know anyone who has a T-Mobile account, then you should be mindful of the fact that it's very possible that your phone number, your account information, the call-related information could have now been in the hands of some third actors. So it's, it's something to be mindful of. And not just for T-Mobile, every other phone phone um, phone call tele, te, every other telecommunications company um, AT&T Verizon and so on and so forth users have to be mindful of the kind of data that could potentially fall into the hands of um, third actors at any time and then third segment is going to be a um, new technology and again the, the only news I have for you guys on that is this a potential groundbreaking technology for the Apple Watch. So Apple has filed a patent for a light sensor on the back of its watch that can authenticate users. This means it will be possible to unlock the watch whenever you put it on instead of having to type in a physical passcode every time. And while this is this sounds like great news, it's kind of like using your face to unlock your phone instead of typing in a passcode or a password, you would be able to unlock your Apple Watch just by putting it on. And I guess the technology behind that is the light sensor would scan the surface of your wrists, maybe the, the shape of your wrist, the kind of vein patterns underneath your skin and so on and so forth. So while this all this sounds good and efficient like we all know apple to make products that just makes life easy for everyone it is very possible that people that have tattoos or people that get tattoos after this technology comes on there might be issues with the apple watch unlocking because now the tattoo will definitely make the surface of their wrist different or maybe some other I don't know some other thing on their skin could now make authenticating their watch much more difficult and they have to maybe re reset or reassign or maybe change the wrist they wear their watch on or something like that I don't know but it's just something to be mindful of and then the, the patent has been filed, but there's also a, di a whole different ball game when we get to see the invention itself. So filing a patent doesn't necessarily mean Apple will make that technology and put it on their watch. They just, they just have the patent in case they would just to prevent someone else from getting the patent and they will now have to pay this other company or something of that nature. But then it's, it's a big gap so to speak, between filing the patent and having the actual invention. And then last but not the least, the last segment is going to be talking about recent news. And the first story here is the, the recent U.S. Capitol riot. So on January 6th, there was this riot that happened in Washington, D.C. And the, the rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol 
there's been a whole lot of news on, on that. However, these, these rioters, um, terrorists, as we would we could also call them, they, they took computers. So they basically stole computers, laptops um, from the U.S. Capitol building. And this happened because the, the lawmakers and the staff members that were in the Capitol building had to leave hurriedly when these um, riots and protests were taking place and they couldn't secure, they couldn't lock the computers, they couldn't secure the laptops and the rioters basically took some of them. So some of the terrorists were photographed, they were actually photographed in front of some computers. Some of them took pictures of computer screens that were left unlocked. And of course there are reports of several laptops missing or stolen. Cybersecurity experts are worried that the rioters, the rioters have been able to get their hands on sensitive data, such as congressional files, shared calendars, emails, email lists of Congress members, constituents, and supporters, and also potentially compromise the security of the entire Capitol building. So again, these laptops are connected to, to the Capitol internet network. It is very possible to install a malware, a malicious software, and then get it onto the capital network from these stolen computers. It's possible to for these terrorists to read emails containing classified information. It's possible for them to basically spy on lawmakers, Congress members, because of these stolen computers. So it is just so many risks involved and it's going to take a while before we actually know the, the consequences of this lapse in security. Some people have said, why why shouldn't they have this fail-safe um, procedure? Why shouldn't they be able to quickly lock? For example, when you lock your laptop, like Control l on Windows um, devices, just quickly lock the computer instead of having to move your mouse to click the start button. So there's so many what ifs, what ifs that could be said. But then, what what has happened has happened, and the the goal now is to be able to determine what was accessed. So if there are audit logs, for example, and the auditors of the Capital Internet Network should be able to determine, okay, during this time frame when the riot started and when it ended, who accessed what documents from what computer was that access and so on and so forth. So that would help to be able to determine how much damage was done and then kind of go from there. So in, in situations like this, it's something to be mindful of. Um, there's this, I guess, a theft or there's a protest and some sensitive computers are involved, then that's something to be, to take note of. And that would also help in terms of operational security for subsequent incidents. My next story here is um, San Francisco police are preparing for a pro-Trump protest at Twitter's headquarters following the president's ban from Twitter. The headquarters is located on the 1300 block of Market Street and the police department in San Francisco stated that they have been in contact with representatives from Twitter and will have sufficient resources to respond to any demonstrations as well as calls for service citywide. So if we recall from last week Wednesday when the Capitol protest happened and the fallout from that was basically Twitter and Facebook and so many other companies removing support for the President of the United States and as a result of that pro-Trump protesters are planning to go stage a protest in front of the headquarters of Twitter in San Francisco and basically the San Francisco Police Department is trying to assure everyone that they are um, pretty much anticipating this and they've put certain things in place since the Capitol protest happened last week. So they said they would be fully ready if the protesters show up and they would also not be short-staffed to the point where they won't be able to answer to any distress calls or 911 calls in other parts of San Francisco. 
So what this means for um, regular folks like you and me is basically whenever protests like this happens, and to be honest, this is kind of unprecedented and uncharted territory in the United States at least, and then it's getting to the point where protesters are going to now target Twitter headquarters because they banned President Trump who incited violence that affected the U.S. Capitol and entire branch of the U.S. government and pretty much brought everything to a standstill last week Wednesday. So I guess we would keep um, monitoring these developments, trying to focus on if anything develops out there in San Francisco in the next few days, then definitely keep an eye out. For my next section, I have... Google is reportedly asking its staffers to scrutinize emails for disruptive language as disgruntled employees in the U.S. and Canada double down on their plans to unionize. Google employees recently created one of the first white-collar unions with members saying they want to promote inclusivity, transparency, and more ethical standards. The membership number has since increased to more than 600. So this is basically saying employees in a big tech company, Google, are trying to form unions because they're demanding more accountability, more transparency, inclusivity, diversity and inclusion from, from their employers. We've, we've heard in the news in recent times about how Uber treats its employees, Facebook treats its employees, and basically saying... Some of these employees are worth more than others. There's so many instances of sexual harassment, which has pretty much left a sour taste in so many employees' mouth. And Google employees are deciding to take action, trying to set the standard for how these big tech companies should treat their employees. So that is something interesting. And if, if this becomes successful, it's going to become a blueprint for the other big tech companies and pretty much every other company in the U.S. where these demands have been kind of requested, demanded for so long, but no one is doing anything about them. So um, this marks the end of my, my four main segments for this episode. And as I stated earlier, I'm going to go into the the bonus segments, basically talking about the top 10 cybersecurity interview questions and answers that employees who are trying to get into cybersecurity should expect, basically, and how they can answer these questions effectively, efficiently, to be able to get a job in cybersecurity. So for the first question, I have, why do you want a career in cybersecurity? So I would, I would encourage newcomers to the cybersecurity field to not start off by telling an interviewer that they heard about the field, that they heard that the field pays well and they want to work in a growth field. So while that's one of the reasons many people pick to go into cybersecurity, there are better ways to phrase that answer. So show the interviewer that you've done some homework and you know about the cybersecurity skills shortage. Because if you mention that um, it shows that you've done your research, you actually know that there is a skill shortage. And that's not just something you can find out by doing a quick Google search. And if you're starting out, say that you're interested in an entry-level job, but also show that you've done your homework, as I explained earlier. Explain that you have been doing some research on which certifications to obtain, but you haven't decided yet. So cybersecurity is a large field. There's so many different areas, so many different parts of cybersecurity. And then, of course, there's so many different certifications that are required to be able to succeed in this field. So it's not just the, the common ones that you find from doing a Google search, top 10 certifications in cyber. No, they're actually unique, specific ones that show that, first of all, you know what you want, and then you know how to get what you want. So that's, that's kind of how to, to answer the question of, okay, why do you want a career? So it, it, it's, it's a reason that has to be unique to you, not just some Google search results that you found and you're trying to piece them together to impress the, the interviewer. For question two, I have, what aspect of cybersecurity interests you? Your answer will tell the interviewer if you are serious or not, basically. While it is fine for newcomers to say that they are still exploring their options, more experienced people need to specify that 
Whether you're more interested in a hands-on penetration testing career, you want to work on a red or blue team, or you want to work in the incident response side of the house, or you want to focus on threat intelligence. Job candidates that ultimately want to become chief information security officers must also show the interviewer how they developed or how they are planning to develop business skills along the way, not just focusing on the technical um, aspects. People with accounting backgrounds can actually gravitate to compliance or risk jobs on security teams because accounting sometimes includes forensic accounting where you have to conduct investigations into where money is flowing to and from. So that skill set is actually desirable for an incident response team. You're trying to figure out how a hack happened, what did the hackers affect, what did they steal, how did the attackers leave the, the company's network, and so on and so forth. So that skill set, which is usually found in accounting and some other fields, can actually be imported into cybersecurity. So you want your, your interviewer to know that you actually know that there are skill sets that are matchable from outside of cybersecurity into cybersecurity. So the, the more you're able to talk about these mirrors, these similarities, this parallel skill sets, the more you are actually going to be considered for a cybersecurity role. Question three for me here is why are security teams essential for businesses today? So this is an area where you can show the interviewer that you actually understand the history of security in an enterprise, in an organization. Explain that the perimeter-based style of security, the perimeter-based model, has become something of the past and has now been replaced by mobile security because if we learned anything from 2020, it is that it's possible for employees to work from home. However, the security model for thousands of employees working from home has changed from when employees are only working from inside the office using the office Wi-Fi. So employees working from home, some of them have good passwords for their Wi-Fi. Some of them have weak passwords. Some of them don't even know that the, the other devices connected to their home Wi-Fi can lead to a security breach for their work computer that is not connected to their home Wi-Fi. So the ability to understand the difference in this security threat model will go a long way in showing the interviewer that, okay, this person not just knows what they're talking about, they actually know the difference between traditional security models and the 2020 security models that the pandemic has brought to, to the forefront. Again, Candidates going for a managerial position in security have to demonstrate that they are people, that, that they are someone that understands technology from a business point of view. So make the case that security professionals cannot get bogged down talking about log analysis, KPIs, and software testing if they hope to convince management about the importance of security infrastructure and policies. Rather, you should be able to argue that security people need to explain to top management how major breaches will affect sales, profit, and future growth by damaging the company's reputation. In other words, you have to be able to talk from both sides of the aisle. So you understand the technical point of view, but you also understand the, the C-suite language. So most, most chief, whatever of the, the company, chief security officer, chief marketing officer, chief this and that, they may not necessarily understand how to interpret or the result of what your firewall logs are telling you. But they want to understand that, okay, this breach happened. This is how much sales is going to affect for this quarter. This is how much of our profit is going to be eaten into and so on and so forth. So if you plan to end up in a managerial position, you have to be able to develop those skills in addition to the technical cybersecurity skills along the way. Question four, what qualities do you possess that will make you an effective cybersecurity professional? So for this question, don't tell them that you live to hack and you've been hacking computers since you were seven years old. No. So on the other hand, don't overstate your case and love for cybersecurity. You should be able to demonstrate that you have a burning curiosity about how networks and devices work and also tell the interviewer how you've solved technical problems in the past. 
because much of cybersecurity is handling technical difficulties, thinking on the spot, critical thinking, the ability to analyze information from different sources within a limited amount of time. So you can also talk about your hobbies, show that you're not just a tech person. Everyone likes someone that is well-rounded on their team. A little bit of this and that, how you can, your, your hobbies, what you do on your downtime, not just reading cybersecurity textbooks, no. So companies like people who have played musical instruments, acted in plays, dabbled in painting, traveled extensively, who can genuinely show that they have other creative interests. So don't just come up, come off as this stereotype cybersecurity person that just plays video games all the time or practice coding. No, they want to see the different sides of you. That would actually make you an effective cybersecurity professional. Question five, what did you accomplish on your last job? So let them know that you're a hard worker, you like taking initiative. Maybe on your last job, you, you worked as an analyst on a team that handled the, the, the renovation of a, an entire network. Let them know what specific role you played on that team. Show them that you're not afraid of learning new technology. So now there's um, augmented reality, there's virtual reality. Maybe that's something you're curious about and you're trying to learn, okay, how does this thing function? How is this going to affect cybersecurity in the nearest term, in the long term, and so on and so forth? Talk about how gaming, for example, affects its home network. What, what kind of things can make a home Wi-Fi network weak and vulnerable to cyber attacks? So all those things are how you can show that, okay, you don't just learn new technology, you're also curious about how things work. And of course, if you haven't had a prior job experience, all this can also fit the answer for, okay, what have you, what did you accomplish on your last job? So I don't have job experience, but I can tell you that I'm curious about how these things work, which is why I'm trying to get this job. And I'm able to manage my time effectively to study for these certifications that I feel I need. So time management, ability to learn new things, all these are things you can highlight for the interviewer. Question six, what does your home network look like? So they're not expecting you at this point to have this, to have three computers and running six different virtual machines on segmented parts of your home Wi-Fi. No. So basically, they need to know that you can follow cybersecurity best practices. In other words, have you changed the default password on your home router since you got it? Have you segmented your home network into at least one segment for gaming, one for home use, and one for when you work from home? For all your main applications, your email sign-in, Facebook sign-in, Instagram sign-in, do you use two-factor authentication? Do you use a password manager to generate complex passwords that are not guessable, that are not hackable? So the, the newcomers into cybersecurity need to show that they understand these basic issues because if you want to protect a company from cyber hackers, you should be able to show that you know what it means to protect yourself. So don't ever take a security interview until you've read up on basic home network security so that you can actually answer the question honestly because Someone that knows the difference between basic home network practices and someone that just did a quick Google search, the difference would pop up when it's time to answer this question. Question seven, what was the biggest security issue for security teams while managing work from home staff in 2020? The pandemic changed the tech and security game for many businesses, as we all know. Almost overnight, companies that had about 10 to 20% of their staff working remotely had almost the entire team working from home. So security professionals need to triage staff and determine who needs a virtual private network, who needs access to um, corporate data. Can you differentiate between a remote desktop protocol or just you should be able to tell the interviewer that you understand that many companies could not handle their VPN request because almost everyone was now requesting VPN access onto the company network and so on and so forth. Some people were forgetting to connect to VPN before logging onto their work email. So, so many of these were 
ch challenges that popped up as a result of the pandemic from last year. And as a potential security um, professional, you should be able to understand that, okay, as at last year, this is one of the biggest security issues while managing work from home staff in 2020. Question eight, how should a cybersecurity department be structured? So while you may not get this specific question, you should be able to find out how the company's security and IT organizations are structured. Does the company plan to have the CISO and the CIO on the same board? If not, are there plans to head in that direction? This information would help you determine if this job is right for you or not. If you're looking for a company that's far along in terms of security maturity, a job at a company just getting security organized might not be a good fit for you. However, if you're looking to become part of a team that's working to improve its security, it could be a fine fit. If you do take, if you do take a job at a company that's just forming a security group, be realistic and flexible. Companies have been through quite a lot in 2020, and if they are reforming or expanding their teams, you should be willing to become a part of that effort. If you're not a risk taker, then you may have to explain that to the interviewer and tell them that the position does not suit your needs or personality. In other words, you have to be able to do the research required for the company you're interviewing at. So as much as you need them, they also need you to be a good fit. So that's a phrase that is common in any job interview. We're trying to determine if you're a good fit. We're trying to determine if you're a good fit. So it works both, way, both ways. You want to work there because you fit there. They want to hire you because you fit there. Question eight, how does continuous learning figure into your security career plans? So it's important to show that you've thought about what a career in cybersecurity looks like. You're not just getting the job because it pays well. You're not just getting the job because it looks cool on your resume. You're not just getting the job because you would prefer to be able to work in your pajamas every day, like most of us did in 2020. If you started off in tech support, but want to be a penetration tester, tell the interviewer that you've been working on this path for a while now, and you understand that you need to continuously develop new skills and earn certifications. Tell them that you've done the research and you plan to become a certified ethical hacker, and then one day pass the OSCP exam. People will take a job as a junior security operations center analyst and they don't plan to keep learning, will get bored and eventually leave the field. So cybersecurity is a field where you kind of have to keep learning because every day, every week, every month, things change. The hack that was effective in January 2020 may not necessarily be effective now. So you need to learn which hacks are effective in January of 2021. So show the interviewer that you're someone who's planning a long career in security and you have a story to tell. Your story could be modest. Maybe you've worked retail at Best Buy while putting yourself through college and you've learned how important security is to the success of the business. The idea is to show the interviewer that your interest in technology and security is genuine and you have given some thought to the types of skills you need to develop. So basically, they need someone who comes across as authentic, not just someone who did a quick Google search 30 minutes to the interview. Last but not the least, question 10. Can you explain the following security basics to show that you have a good grounding in the field? So for example, a popular question in this regard is, what's the difference between a vulnerability and an exploit? So a vulnerability is just a weakness or a gap in an organization's defenses that could be exploited. An exploit is when the bad threat actors, the hackers, take advantage of vulnerabilities to gain unauthorized access to a corporate network. So let, let the interviewer know that you can actually tell or you know how the industry tracks vulnerabilities and how they report them. So for example, cve.mitra.org tracks and posts information on all reported vulnerabilities. So this goes further to show that you've done your research, you actually know what this thing is and how they are being used, how they are being tracked. What if someone drops something in your lap that, okay, this vulnerability was exploited to steal vaccine, COVID vaccine information. You actually know where to start from to investigate that incident. And another thing is, okay, define encryption. 
that's a very common question because emails nowadays for it to be secure it has to be encrypted for your internet connection to be secure sometimes you need a vpn sometimes you need to use a speci- um, specialized kind of browser also that your in- data that you're sending to and fro becomes encrypted and no one is able to steal them the same thing happens for messaging apps whatsapp telegram signal all these apps use encryption so that it's only the sender and the receiver that will be able to get and decode the message which your app is doing for you anyway anyone that's trying to intercept your messages between you and your friends they won't be able to see the messages because they don't have the encryption key so that's another terminology that you have to be able to define another thing is what is ransomware so in the year 2020 there was a lot of ransomware attacks you probably heard some of these in the news or not but then you have to be able to say okay what is ransomware how does it happen what are the examples of major ransomware attacks who was targeted who were the victims and so on and so forth so some other um, terminologies include cross-site scripting which is written as xss so it's basically a kind of a way to infect websites so you have to be able to define what is a cross-site scripting attack. What does a hacker doing cross-site scripting hope to get? How can you protect yourself, your company against cross-site scripting? So there's so many other um, terminologies that you can actually read up on so that when the time comes to be able to say something about them, you can actually come across as someone that knows what they're talking about. So, so far we've um, gone through the, the four main segments for this episode. Um, we've gone over the bonus segment about top 10 question, questions and answers for prospective cybersecurity um, employees. And I would say that's, that's all I have for today's episode of The Beat Picture. Thanks for listening, and the, the show is produced, edited, and audio engineered by yours truly, Bidemi Ologunde. The production team includes Toby Atima, Folari Ologunde, and Akinla Ologunde. Special thanks to techtarget.com for the bonus segment. Join us again next week as we continue with a deep dive on weekly cybersecurity news and events and how we can apply them to our daily lives for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness. Make sure you subscribe to The Big Picture on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts from. For questions, comments, or any suggestions on which topics you would like to hear about on future episodes, please send me an email at bdemi at thebeatpicture.com. That's B-I-D-E-M-I at the B-I-D-picture.com. I'm also available on LinkedIn by looking up my first and last name, Bidemi or Logan Day. Thank you for your time. God bless and talk to you next week.